Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is an audio-only exclusive episode for the people who listen regularly on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Podbean, or any other audio-only platform. If you followed my prompt from YouTube to come over here today, welcome. I suggest following Return to Tradition here as a backup to YouTube so you don't miss any extra spicy content when it happens. For regular podcast listeners, the regular episode for YouTube will follow this one. The news today shocked the Catholic world, and it's, it's just too much for YouTube, so let's get into it. The news that sent shockwaves around the part of the Catholic world that is still Catholic and is still paying attention was the appointment a couple of days ago of a famous eugenicist, Jeffrey Sachs, by Francis to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. Sachs is a well-known advocate of population control, which is one of those handy euphemisms the Malachians use to really mean widespread and easy access to abortion and genocide. Sachs is no stranger to the Vatican. He's participated in numerous Vatican conferences under Francis that I'll go over in a minute. But this appointment proves the lie about Francis. He no more cares about the poor than he is actually Catholic. This is a monstrous, diabolical appointment, one that will be a blot on the history of the institutions of the Church until the end of time. Sachs is no friend of humanity and has earned widespread condemnation from people of every conceivable political persuasion. For example, this comes from The Nation, a leftist, progressive, utterly secular outlet. They are no friend of ours, to be sure, on virtually every topic under the sun, and this was published back in 2012, back at the tail end of such groups professing to care about economics and the poor, before fully embracing degeneracy. Here's what they had to say at that time of Jeffrey Sachs, who was getting nominated by the Obama administration to some post or another. Quote, The solutions Sachs proposes to poverty, they point out, can be summed up in the not very new words, aid and trade. But if that wasn't bad enough, there's Sachs's other favorite problem solver, population control. That's taking us to a new era, all right, right back to the 19th century of Thomas Malthus. Sachs presented five Reith lectures titled Bursting at the Seams in 2007, in which he hit on several of his proposed solutions, among them trade, aid, new technologies, and quote-unquote stabilizing population. The evidence is overwhelming that it's possible and necessary to have a rapid demographic transition on a voluntary basis to greatly reduce fertility rates in poor countries, Sachs said. He reiterated that point more forcefully in an op-ed for CNN last October. How can we enjoy sustainable development on a very crowded planet, he asked. End quote. This is the man Francis has allied himself with. A more of the same on economics figure who wants to cull the population, to euphemistically control the population and its growth in the name of sustainable development. Jeff Sachs and Bill Gates are two peas in a population control pod. Both have a great deal of work for the World Bank and World Health Organization on their resumes, to such a degree that their respective work has quite a lot of overlap. They've been critical of one another publicly in the past, but don't be fooled. They're allies in pursuing their goal of sustainable development. They're 
public squabbles have been no more convincing than that of a Democrat and a Republican arguing about the things that Democrats and Republicans only disagree on the finer details of, like go- like giant amounts of government spending. And for these two, that by necessity includes stable population. They are two peas in the pod when it comes to that. Here is Gates's work on sustainable development in Africa as an example, which which Sachs is connected to. And I cite this in my doctoral dissertation as an exercise gone wrong in how organizations could work with the church if they so chose to. In fact, here's an excerpt from my dissertation on Catholic social teaching on Gates's tetanus program gone horribly wrong. Quote, The case is that of Kenya and the vaccination programs of 2014, led by the Gates Foundation and the World Health Organization. The facts of the case are straightforward. The Gates Foundation, with the permission of governments of various countries, including Kenya, Nicaragua, among others, distributed vaccines against tetanus to the populations of these countries. These vaccines were contaminated with a chemical that caused sterilization, resulting in the sterilization of at least half a million people in various countries of the underdeveloped world. This case has unfortunately not been given the serious scrutiny by serious academic researchers that it deserves, partially due to the sensitive nature of the subject, coinciding with critical action being taken by the Gates Foundation to develop a vaccine that much of the world's population will likely receive in the coming years. But it is worth exploring in brief here. The Kenyan bishops raised the alarm about these vaccines. The Catholic Church in Kenya is responsible for operating approximately 80% of the hospitals and healthcare facilities in the country, and as such, would be a natural partner for the implementation of a major vaccination program. The church directly employs the health professionals and owns the facilities necessary to make the implementation of this program significantly easier. The bishops released a statement about this program that raised serious concerns against the program of the Gates Foundation and the Kenyan government. Quote, Before the March and October 2014 mass tetanus vaccination campaign, the Catholic Church raised concerns about the safety of the vaccine that was being used. This was informed by what had happened in Mexico, Nicaragua, and the Philippines, where the World Health Organization and UNICEF had conducted similar campaigns using tetanus toxoid impregnated with beta-HCG that causes production of antibodies against the natural HCG, resulting in permanent infertility. The mass tetanus immunization campaigns in Kenya in March and October 2014 were also sponsored by the World Health Organization and UNICEF. The Catholic Church requested the Ministry of Health that the vaccines be tested before use to ensure they were safe. These requests were rejected by the Ministry of Health. Subsequently, the Catholic Church independently sampled nine vaccine vials from the two campaigns with difficulty. Six of these vials were tested in five different laboratories here in Kenya. One-third of the vials, three out of nine, were found to be laced with beta-HCG. The document continues and lists methodical questions regarding laboratory results, transparency with the Kenyan government and NGO partners, and the lack of communication with church officials in the implementation of this program. When tested, the one-third of the samples had been verified by independent researchers. The Bishops' Conference released a press statement that coincided with the statement above leveling serious charges against the World Health Organization, UNICEF, and by extension, the Gates Foundation, and similar nonprofit organizations that have as yet to be answered in a way that will satisfy the Bishops' Conference. End quote. Again, that's from my dissertation. Jeffrey Sachs is directly tied to global efforts on spreading vaccines and has given many speeches on the subject, both before and after his present global situation. He's knee-deep in those efforts, and it's tied to the World Health Organization and other groups essential to that work. Sachs actually has a former position as a chair of a major office in the World Health Organization. 
This is all tied together. Now, that having all been said, here's what LifeSite News reported on Jeffrey Sachs and his history of involvement at the Vatican under Francis. Quote, Sachs was behind the United Nations Millennium Development Goals and is an architect of the pro-abortion and pro-LGBT Sustainable Development Goals. Currently serving as director for the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University in New York, the 66-year-old has been a favorite of Pope Francis since the early days of the current pontificate. In 2015, Sachs notably partnered with the Vatican to host and moderate a conference on climate change, a shared passion of both the Pope and the highly influential UN figure. However, as Elizabeth Yore noted at the time, the Economist 2015 address was but the latest of over nine appearances and speeches at the Vatican's Pontifical Academy in the last three years. Since then, Sachs has continued as a regular visitor at the Vatican, including for key events such as the 2019 Amazon Synod, a 2019 Vatican Youth Conference based on the Sustainable Development Goals, a 2020 online conference on a new world economy, and the Pope's 2020 launch of his partnership with the UN for Education. In a 2017 Vatican conference, Sachs yelled out at LifeSite's John Henry Weston, You're disgusting! You're disgusting! You're disgusting! in response to an article Weston had written in which he described Sachs as a pro-abortion globalist. A former special advisor to current UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres on the UN's Sustainable Development Goals and for Ban Ki-moon when he was Secretary General, Sachs has made no secret of his anti-life views. In his 2009 book, Commonwealth, Economics for a Crowded Planet, he called for the legalizing abortion as a cost-effective way to eliminate quote-unquote unwanted children, when contraception fails to achieve that end. To accelerate the decline in fertility, abortion should be legalized, Sachs wrote. End quote. What are we left to think about this? Most Catholics will yawn and say, eh, so what, or eh, I don't care. But this begs some questions. Francis speaks a great game about caring for the poor, going out to the margins and other things that are perfectly Catholic and laudable. Then he does things like this, where he gives a monstrous eugenicist a top post in the Vatican. Are people ready to have the question about Francis as Pope yet? Are they ready to have that discussion? Are they ready to invoke the H word with his reign? If this won't do it, if this won't wake people up, then I don't know what will. There isn't much left to ask about Francis after this, though. His alliance with the UN and the politicians of the world is frankly demonic in nature. It can only be seen in that light. We cannot have a pope who works with diabolical forces like this and expect there to be no consequences for the church. Now, some will say that this is merely an example of Francis using the expertise of those outside the church to further the mission of Christ and his church in the world. I'll just quote what Mike from the podcast Restoring the Faith had to say about this to LifeSite News. Quote, The appointment prompted numerous Catholics to protest, with Bishop Joseph Strickland calling for the pope to clarify his actions and Restoring the Faith media telling LifeSite News that Sachs hates human beings. He wishes we were far fewer. Billions fewer, in fact. His lifelong experience is in the reduction of the global human population, an aspiration which squares perfectly with the naturalist worldview driving superstitious COVID agenda, continued restoring the faith spokesman. This nomination furthers the already festering mistrust faithful Catholics have in this pontificate and widens the gulf between those earnestly seeking to practice the faith and the clerical consultant class, whom for the next two years, it seems, are turning their gaze inward in an attempt to discover how vague notions of synodality, participation, and mission can obfuscate the obvious collapse of the physical institutions, he warned. End quote. Nothing he said there is wrong. Truly, the institutions of the church and their shepherds have lost their way when barely a hue and cry is raised at such a wicked appointment. 
Once upon a time, public figures in the church called men like Jeff Sachs for what they were, eugenicists. The aim of the population control advocates is not to only reduce the number of people on the planet, which would be bad enough, but to reduce what they call the useless eaters of the world. And these will be mostly the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world. Though, to be sure, they want to cull the population of every country on the planet to get their vaunted population cap of 500 million people, as they so brazenly tell us on the Georgia Guidestones. G.K. Chesterton said this of the eugenicists, because this is not a new problem at all. Quote, It remains unexplored, not merely through snobbery and cowardice, but because the eugenicist, at least the influential eugenicist, half-consciously knows it is no part of his job. What he is really wanted for is to get the grip of the governing classes on the unmanageable output of poor people. It would not matter in the least if all Lord Cowdery's descendants grew up too weak to hold a tool or turn a wheel. It would matter very much, especially to Lord Cowdery, if all of his employees grew up like that. The oligarch can be unemployable because he will not be employed. Thus, the practical and popular exponent of eugenics has his face always turned towards the slums and instinctively thinks in terms of them. The ornaments may be allowed to decay, but the machinery must be mended. That is the second proof of the plutocratic impulse behind all eugenics, that no one thinks of applying it to the prominent classes. No one thinks of applying it where it could most easily be applied. End quote. And Mr. Chesterton was, as usual, right. The target of this population control is and always was the same poor people on the margins that Francis is always talking about. This appointment makes it clear that he has no more regard for the truly poor than for the rest of us, because if he did care, then he would not appoint someone who wants all the useless eaters, as the eugenicists call them, to be dead. I'll end this with another Chesterton quote, also about eugenicists. Here he talks about how they dress up their homicidal urges in the most clean and happy of language, all the while they obfuscate by using language most people cannot understand. Quote, Most eugenicists are euphemists. I mean merely that short words startle them, while long words soothe them. And they are utterly incapable of translating the one into the other, however obviously they mean the same thing. Say to them, the persuasive and even coercive powers of the citizen should enable him to make sure that the burden of longevity in the previous generation does not become disproportionate and intolerable, especially to the females. Say this to them, and they will sway slightly and to and fro like babies sent to sleep in cradles. Say to them, murder your mother, and they sit up quite suddenly. Yet the two sentences, in cold logic, are exactly the same. Say to them, it is not improbable that a period may arrive when the narrow, if once useful, distinction between the anthropomoid homo and the other animals, which has been modified on so many moral points, may be modified also even in regard to the important question of the extension of the human diet. Say this to them, and beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into their face. But say to them, in a simple, manly, hearty way, let's eat a man, and their surprise is quite surprising. Yet the sentences say just the same thing. End quote. Population control means mass sterilization and genocide, and that is all it means. Say this to them and they feign outrage, like when Jeff Sachs once went nuclear on John Henry Weston, when Mr. Weston managed to ask him a hard question in public. That is what happens because at the end of the day, monstrous men like this have to lie to themselves in order to promote their agenda. Tell them the truth, and they come down on you like the wrath of God. Thanks for tuning in over here if you came in from YouTube. And for those of you who regularly listen on a podcasting host, the regular episode begins now. I'm going to begin today by telling you that I have an audio-only bonus on some news out of the Vatican that is just way too spicy for this place. 
check the pinned comment for a link to an audio-only embedded player for this bonus show, or find Return to Tradition on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or any of the other major podcasting platforms. The patrons of this channel really make it possible for me to give you these extra things as they happen, even if I have to put them off-platform. You don't want to miss it. It does involve the meeting of the Pacamama issue, the Moloch servants, and Francis's desire to build a world in the image and likeness of the Laudato Si' message, all in keeping with the powers of Caesar, and it's all bundled up together. That audio-only episode is 100% unfiltered. Again, the pinned comment is where you'll find a link to that episode. Now on to the more regular topic of the day. The mind of the modernist is something hard to fathom at times. For them, figures like you and I, who most certainly hold views outside the mainstream of the Catholic world in our time, are bad enough, but mostly ignored. While men who are much more in keeping with the average faithful diocesan parish priest and parish in middle America are called into question. America Magazine went after a retired bishop cut from the mold of Benedict XVI, and they called him a schismatic, as well as calling a pretty normal Catholic outlet schismatic as well. Let's take a look at this, because this is a ridiculous story on its face, but it gives us insight into something else that's going on that I'm going to touch on towards the end. Our story comes from, where else, the National Catholic Reporter and America Magazine, two outlets attached at the hip that are known for promoting a view of the faith that would have been considered a parody of the faith if it were presented by Monty Python, but is instead sadly something many people think is the actual faith. Archbishop Chapu came out and told the truth about EWTN, that they are not schismatic in the slightest, and got the business end of National Catholic Reporter and America Magazine's wrath for his troubles. Let's take a look at the piece in question, because it's a whopper. Quote, Last Thursday was a good day for Archbishop Charles Chapu, the former Archbishop of Philadelphia. He got to call Pope Francis a liar in the pages of First Things. Chapu was ostensibly responding to an article published in America Magazine, in which Austin Ivory discussed Pope Francis's comments about EWTN, the non-Bergolian Catholic media outlet. And Chapu acknowledged the linkage. To be fair, Ivory's article simply elaborates on comments that Pope Francis made recently to Jesuits in Slovakia, he writes. Pope Francis didn't name the offending media organization, but as journalists quickly confirmed, he meant EWTN. When he goes on to explain that EWTN is not nearly as fearsome as, say, Facebook, he is aware of its strengths and its weaknesses. He is wrestling with Ivere, but then he gets to the central contention of his article. Any suggestion that EWTN is unfaithful to the Church, the Second Vatican Council, or the Holy See is simply vindictive and false. End quote. Notice that America Magazine, by extension Francis, are conflating the presumed pontiff as himself with the Church. Virtually anyone who is awake to the state of the Church admits to themselves that Francis is almost certainly going to be the subject of a future council, or at least actions taken by a future pontiff, that will almost certainly declare his acts to be null and void in one manner or another. That is practically a given at this point, and organizations like America Magazine have the sole job of selling Francis's actions to the public and by extension, so does the National Catholic Reporter. Remember, American Magazine's editor is Pastor Jimmy Martin of the Jesuit Church, who happens to have an important communications consultancy job with the Vatican. I will say this much in Martin's defense, though. They obviously didn't ask his opinion on the synod documents and visual marketing materials because those were clearly outsourced to a daycare center somewhere nearby the Vatican. It's sort of amusing to see people demanding loyalty to the Second Vatican Council, though. I'm going to remind everyone of something Paul VI said at the close of the Council itself, that it's non-binding on the conscience of the faithful. Quoting Paul VI, 
There are those who ask what authority, what theological qualification the Council intended to give to its teachings, knowing that avoided issuing solemn dogmatic definitions engaging the infallibility of the ecclesiastical magisterium. The answer is known by whoever remembers the conciliar declaration of March 6, 1964, repeated on November 16, 1964. Given the Council's pastoral character, it is avoided pronouncing in an extraordinary manner dogmas endowed with the note of infallibility. End quote. And it's why you see a lot of traditional Catholics, a lot of the hardline ones, who will half jokingly say, I affirm and reaffirm all the infallible teachings of Vatican II. There's a reason for that. Now, however, there do remain debates about how binding a non binding pastoral council is on the faithful, a step especially when it is the only council in the history of the Church of its kind. But that's not really the point that I'm trying to make here. The authors of American Magazine and National Catholic Reporter, like the powers that be in the church, have made a non-binding council binding on the faithful. It's really quite remarkable to watch, especially since you're about to see the authors here take staunch defenders of the now-dead hermeneutic of continuity in the council itself and align them as virtual schismatics. Archbishop Chaput is a son of the council. He has long defended Vatican II before. But here they go. Quote, being unfaithful to the church is exactly what Pope Francis said EWTN was. There is, for example, a large Catholic television channel that has no hesitation in continuing speaking ill of the Pope, Francis said in the third person referring to himself, to the Jesuits in Slovakia. I personally deserve attacks and insults because I am a sinner, but the church does not deserve them. They are the work of the devil. I have also said this to some of them. Archbishop Chaput now states that such a claim is simply vindictive and false. End quote. I have to tread carefully here because the author then attacks EWTN for not being aligned with an American party of Moloch because on social topics that party has positions on some things that don't conflict with the faith either way. While the author utterly ignores the Moloch topic in its entirety. It's really remarkable, but again, it's all just more of that seamless garment nonsense. The author is conflating essentially that party with the church's official stance on things, which is remarkably disingenuous. The Catholic position on things does not ally with any secular program, full stop. People have a hard time accepting this, but again, the lukewarm will do what the lukewarm will do to justify themselves. But then the author continues, quote, Pope Francis's apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, and the two synods that led up to it were a source of constant criticism at EWTN. Indeed, the only Cardinals Raymond Arroyo routinely books are those like Cardinal Raymond Burke and Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, who led the opposition to Amoris Laetitia. In fact, Mueller appeared on EWTN last week, saying the consultation before the synod is unnecessary. The list goes on. Their continued effort to claim the mantle of orthodoxy for themselves while casting aspersion on the Pope's orthodoxy is at least quasi-schismatic. From the Laudato Si topic, to the traditional Latin Mass, to the appointment of American cardinals to synodality, EWTN's twin news programs, News Nightly and Arroyo's Weekly, The World Over, have been conspicuous in highlighting the Pope's critics and never his defenders. Even non-Bergolian prelates like Cardinal Sean O'Malley do not make the cut for Arroyo anymore because... Imagine that. O'Malley takes his vow of obedience to the Pope seriously. End quote. All right, now for the record, O'Malley is actually an out-and-out -out modernist, and that's probably why Arroyo doesn't invite him on, but who really knows at this point? But there it is. EWTN, a bastion of, frankly, middle-of-the-road, normie-friendly Novus Ordo Catholicism, are quasi-schismatic at the very least, according to the logic of this outlet. Do you see how this works? If you're not on board with Francis's efforts to finish the construction of the ape of the church, you're schismatic. Just to be clear, 
Now, if you'd like to read that article for yourself, I have a link to it in today's show notes at returntotradition.org. That's the name of this podcast with a.org at the end. Skip past the Patreon pop-up since there is no paywall for my sources. Now, why are they acting so irrationally towards a frankly middle-of-the-road Novus Ordo hermeneutic of continuity bishop like Chapu? The man is no Archbishop Lefebvre or even Bishop Athanasius. He had the courage to tell the truth about Amoris Laetitia, a document that is by itself clearly heretical in its application to the nuptial sacrament. Why are they lashing out at him? Hilary White, White, writing over at 1 Peter 5 on the targeting of the Carmelites, offers insight into this that tells us quite a lot and is directly applicable to this. Quote, In our times, these ancient political games are being played again by a Vatican that is holy and manifestly corrupt in every imaginable way. This time, the currency is not land or the wool trade or the early monastics nor the lucrative servant and commodities trade from the early South American settlements. Now the coin is ideology. The new paradigm of the church is being aggressively forced onto the institution by a group of the most morally, ideologically, theologically, fleshly, and financially corrupt men the church has ever had to endure in centuries. It is not going too far to call the Bergoglian Vatican a seculum obscurum. We hardly need to go through the list. For a while, I was cataloging the cases, starting most famously with the Franciscan friars and sisters of the Immaculate, nuked by visitors, most likely at the request of the Italian Episcopate, who notoriously loathed them for their success, their vigorous growth and their obvious rejection of the Vatican II new paradigm. Since then, there have been perhaps a dozen odd communities of priests and sisters in various countries who have had the visitator hammer fall. The things they all have in common, a love of traditional styles of religious life and liturgy, plus money or property. Why the Fairfield Carmel? Obviously because they are successful but most especially because they are successful as traditionalists. They have grown and prospered and are building their beautiful stone monastery. They are popular and have immense support from the laity. All this while very firmly rejecting the modernist quote-unquote reforms of religious life and liturgy that in Rome are considered the litmus test for the acceptance by the contemporary church. End quote. She nails it. Absolutely, unequivocally nails it. But Miss White's point is correct. These ancient secular games are being waged now on every front in the church at this moment, and the figures waging it dare to suggest that not only are we the schismatics, but people who are, frankly, much more mainstream than you and or, or I. Worse, they suggest that very, very mainstream figures like Arroyo and Archbishop Chapu are schismatics when they represent something much more akin to normal Catholics trying to live the faith as best they can with the tools the institutional church makes easily available in our time. That's a Herculean task. There's nothing radical about Arroyo or Chapu at all, and they're the ones called schismatics. Just remember, the charge comes from the outlets that not only speaks for Francis in the English-speaking world, but also run are run by the man who is building a bridge to making the church accept sins that cry out to heaven, and has publicly said he thinks the biblical account of those sins is wrong, meaning he has publicly denied the inerrancy of sacred scripture, which makes him a formal, manifest, public heretic. At the core of this is, of course, Caesar and his dirty silver coins but also another kind of conflict. I want to expand here on what Miss White was saying in her piece from 1 Peter 5, with this from something else from 1 Peter 5 from some time ago, written by Professor Peter Kwasniewski. And it's this kind of conflict. The traditional Catholic view of the faith is a surrender of ourselves to something exterior, namely to the reign of Christ the King and his church. And the battle here is that of the modernists. Their view is summed up clearly here by Professor Peter Kwasniewski in his description of Pius X's battle against the predecessors of the Martins and Bergoglios of his day. Quote, 
consider the modernist reinterpretation of Christianity as the encyclical Pascendi portrays it. For the modernist, faith is an interior sense originating in a need for the divine. It is not a gift from without, but an imminent surge, an intuition of the heart, a subjective experience. Religion, accordingly, is when this sense rises to the level of consciousness and becomes an expression of a worldview. What, then, is revelation? The awakening conscience of the divine within me. Doctrine, in turn, is the intellect's ongoing elaboration of that awakening. All dogmatic formulas are mere symbols or instruments by which the intellect tries to capture the meaning of religious experience. Hence, of necessity, dogma evolves in response to the pressure of vital forces, with ever-changing beliefs corresponding to ever-changing understandings of reality and of subjective experience. What becomes of scripture and tradition? Tradition is the sharing with others of an original experience in such a way that it becomes the experience of others, too, while scripture is the written record of particularly powerful experiences expressed with poetic inspiration. I'm going to interject here for a second. Remember, this is the view of the modernists, and this has been categorically rejected by the church. Until Vatican II, anyway. Continuing. Sacraments are the... Finally, are public gestures by which the assembled faith community represents to itself a certain worldview and excites in itself an awareness of the divine. No wonder the 1907 document Lamentabili Sane from the Holy Office condemned the following modernist proposition, with many others akin to it. Truth is no more unchangeable than man itself, since it involves with him, in him, and through him. As Cardinal Mercier wrote in the same year, Modernism consists essentially in affirming that the religious soul must draw from itself, from nothing but itself, the object and motive of its faith. It rejects all revelation imposed upon the conscience, and thus, as a necessary consequence, becomes the negation of the doctrinal authority of the Church, established by Jesus Christ, and it denies, moreover, to the divinely constituted hierarchy the right to govern Christian society. End quote. I hope you found that useful today. Like and subscribe if you haven't already. It really does help. Please keep all the figures I've mentioned here in your prayers, Cardinal Shapu, all of them. And as always, pray for the Church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.